Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Richard Helpy. Today we have with us Dr. Owen Perlman to talk about changes in insurance. It is in the state of Michigan, but it does have national implications, something everybody should be aware of, particularly in these times of insufficient reporting. The Common Bridge, of course, is available on Substack.com. Just go to Substack.com, enter The Common Bridge in the search bar and subscribe. We are on most major podcast outlets, YouTube TV. And of course, if you've got the Radio Garden app at Mission Control Radio with our good friend and contributor, Carl Bingle. Dr. Perlman is a graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School. He completed his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Michigan and served as the chief resident in his senior year. He's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and practices today in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We recently had an episode on to talk about the $400 coming back to drivers in Michigan and what some of the costs might be. And today you're going to hear a lot about the impacts on human beings for this decision. So Dr. Perlman, thank you so much for joining us today. Looking forward to a great conversation. My pleasure. Dr. Perlman, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So if you don't mind, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your early days? Where did you grow up? And maybe a little bit more color on your academic and then a thumbnail of your professional work. Certainly. I grew up in Detroit, right in the city, by uh, between seven and eight mile off of Schaefer and went to Henry Ford High School. Uh, and totally enjoyed growing up there and took advantage of all the things that were going on at that time and came out to Ann Arbor in 1969 to go to undergrad and then to medical school and then did my residency all at the University of Michigan. I had a lot of side jobs through those years, including some fun ones. I was a truck driver for McInerney Miller Brother Poultry down in the Eastern Market for a number of years you know, during school breaks. I delivered the Detroit News for many years uh, as well, and I also uh, had such things as a, as what we would call a bagel route or a grocery route on Sunday mornings where I would deliver to customers as well. I, in college, I worked as a travel agent and sold trips to the Bahamas and Jamaica, Nassau, Acapulco, et cetera, to other students and also to teachers who were taking breaks at that time as well. And and worked as a dishwasher uh, at, at a sorority house. During my residency, I was a moonlighter out at Jackson Prison, you know, running the infirmary there on weekends as well. And today you founded a group practice in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Tell us a little bit about that. So I finished my residency in 1981 and was uh, hired at age 29 to be the medical director of the adult inpatient rehabilitation unit. For the 28 years prior to that, it had been a 13-bed unit at the old university hospital. But uh, based on what I decided, the approach I wanted to take, we were able to expand that within a short period of time up to about 
uh, 28 patients per day we were following, and they moved us to another floor and gave us a 24-bed unit. In 1984, St. Joseph Mercy Hospital in Ann Arbor wanted to develop a rehabilitation program. They did a national search, and fortunately for me, I was hired because they've been, they've been great in terms of providing the resources to develop that program. And we immediately developed a 40-bed inpatient rehabilitation unit for patients with brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, strokes, uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, et cetera. And in those days, people who had joint replacements could come to the rehab unit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became what we call CARF certified, certified by the Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities. I developed an interest while I was still at the University of Michigan in traumatic brain injury. A real quick story since we're dealing with inflation right now again. Uh, some of us that are a little bit older might recall that in 1980, there was rampant inflation. In fact, the inflation got up to as high as 20%. And when, when I was hired for my job, uh, one of the doctors who I worked with was going to be moving to Portland, Oregon. And he was our specialist in spinal cord injury. He was, his name is Fred Maynard. He was really a knowledgeable doctor. And he was unable to move because the inflation was so high that he, that he really couldn't afford to move. He couldn't, nobody could buy his house. So he stayed. I was still allowed to stay as the medical director of the inpatient unit, but obviously I had to find a different niche. And so my niche became traumatic brain injury, and in those days also chronic pain. So when I got over to St. Joe's, we developed a CARF-accredited inpatient program of traumatic brain injury, and we were doing well. And many people may know who Don Massey is, Don Massey of Don Massey Cadillac. And Don's wife, Joyce, unfortunately had sustained a significant traumatic brain injury from a motor vehicle accident in the early 1980s. At that time, services in Michigan were just becoming more fully developed. And she got her care out at Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado, Englewood, Colorado. Very famous place. Yeah, exactly right. And when she was coming back, Don wanted to find somebody who could manage her care, etc. So he interviewed people and he chose me to manage uh, Joyce's care. We hit it off well. And under those circumstances, he donated a significant amount of money to help us develop the Joyce Massey Traumatic Brain Injury Day Treatment Service, an outpatient program for people who had sustained traumatic brain injuries, which also became CARF accredited. And then additionally, while we were there, we developed a return to work program just called the Macaulay Work Program in those days for for people who had been injured to, to be able to hone their skills and eventually get back to work, whether it was in factories, schools, et cetera. Uh, and and those areas. As I became more involved with traumatic brain injury, I also became the medical director of several post-acute residential programs, meaning after people left the hospital, those folks who couldn't go home because their care needs were so great would go to residential programs where they could be treated and also receive their therapies. Those included programs in southeastern Michigan, such as Specialty and Rainbow Rehabilitation. And so I, at various times, I was the medical director at Specialty. I'm still the medical director at Rainbow. And Specialty then uh, merged with another company called Willowbrook Rehabilitation in Brighton that I was also the medical director of. They are now named Resilier Neuro, very fine company. And I'm the medical director there as well. I became uh, more involved in the Brain Injury Association of Michigan 
and have worked with them for years and years. And ultimately, in the past year, I was unanimously elected to the National Board of the Brain Injury Association of America. I've been involved in, in and for lack of a better term, I've been involved in the fight to protect and save auto no-fault insurance in the state of Michigan going back many years, but in particular since 1992 and 1994 uh, when there were ballot proposals uh, in which time we were able to save auto no-fault each time by 66% and 61%. So there was a the electorate was in support of maintaining auto no fault. And that foundation where you've had a lifetime of caring for the long-term needs of the acutely injured or the chronically injured. And uh, of course, you know, brains uh, can't be repaired. They can be retrained to an extent, but a person needing care needs that care and their respiratory functions may continue on. Their heart functions may continue on, but they are severely disabled. And what people don't understand about this, and you've enlightened me somewhat with some of the material you've sent me, is even a person, a pedestrian, could become horribly injured uh, by an automobile. And we're going to talk today about the personal impacts and what this new legislation does. Can I set the little background for people? Okay. I think it's important for everybody to recognize that, uh, that both traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury are really become chronic diseases for these individuals, just like having severe kidney disease or diabetes, et cetera, where they have to deal with it for the rest of their lives. When a person has a traumatic brain injury, it's not just a question of maybe having problems with their memory. A traumatic brain injury is an alteration, what we would call brain behavior relationships, a fancy way of saying it can impact the person physically, cognitively, emotionally, and behaviorally. Physically is obvious. They could be paralyzed on on one or both sides of their body, have problems with swallowing, could have a lot of other medical problems like seizures, etc. Cognitively means they could have difficulty being able to focus, pay attention, concentrate, remember. Their processing speed can be off. They could have significant problems with what we call executive function, being able to make decisions, being able to understand what's going on around them. Emotionally, because of the changes in their lives, they could have a lot of sadness because of chronic pain that they could have. They could have a lot of depression, et cetera. And behaviorally, we have many people that become quite impulsive and their behavior becomes a danger to themselves and others that require a lot of supervision, medications as well. The folks with spinal cord injury similarly have a have problems that are also lifelong. Not in addition to being paralyzed, they can have a lot of, uh, as you started to talk about, uh, heart problems and lung problems, cardiac and respiratory problems like that. But they can also have significant problems with their bladder, with their bowel, with what we call spasticity, meaning the ability to control their body so it doesn't tighten up on them, uh, et cetera. And all those things need to be managed really for the rest of their lives. And they need access to therapies for the rest of their lives. Otherwise, they're going to have many complications that will result in them having to go back into the hospital. Thank you for listening or watching this segment of Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. At Substack.com, search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. Now back to Richard Helpy's The Common Bridge. I appreciate that background and those foundational statements in that 
These are long-term permanent things. They can happen as a result of many things, but in particular, the result of an accident. And one thing that I always consider that everyone listening or viewing or reading this on the common bridge, we're one accident or one illness away or you know, one stroke, cardiac event, car accident from being in that position. You're, you're correct about that because it's, it's anyone, anytime, any place. And as you alluded to earlier, very astutely, it's not just you know, people driving cars. It's, there's many accidents that do involve pedestrians. There's many accidents that do involve motorcyclists, many accidents that, re, that involve uh, bicyclists. And, and every year we also have many people that are training for triathlons that also get injured as well. And, and you know, diving accidents, there, it's, there's a host yep. of things that that we don't want to bankrupt their families and we don't want to remove them from the love and care that they can get. In recent days, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced that all those insured car insurance as of 11.59 p.m. on October 31st, 2021, will receive a $400 rebate oddly enough, paid back to their insurance companies that they need to get. It's $80 for a historic car. And Governor Whitmer made the representation that while $3 billion is being termed surplus funds available for catastrophic accident survivors is going to be paid out, that some $2 billion will be left. We're now beginning to unravel some of the details behind that and really have to wonder, is there enough money? And so, Dr. Perlman, the first question I want to ask you is this. In episode on the Common Bridge just prior to this with Attorney George Sinus, we captioned it, choices, money for votes or money for victims of car crashes. Is this a fair interpretation of what's going on? Well, it's totally a fair interpretation of what's going on. Uh, one thing that, the, that our listeners probably need to understand is that it's not a total of, of five uh, billion dollars in the uh, what we call the MCCA or the catastrophic fund the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association fund there's probably about 27 billion dollars in there the 5 billion dollars is a reference to the uh, the amount that that probably is extra as a result of what happened with covid essentially people didn't drive for a year or more and so there were much fewer accidents so there's much much smaller payout under those circumstances. But in a direct answer to your question, it's clear that this is just a political stunt. Um, it's an opportunity to ingratiate uh, themselves, the politicians to ingratiate themselves with the voters, particularly because it's an election year. At the same time, while we're, while we're dealing with, and, and there's been hundreds of articles in, in, in Michigan, in, the, in all the papers, including on NPR, including in Cranes, as well, uh, listing uh, all the various uh, untoward effects of the changes in the no-fault law that was passed in 2019. So I want to break that down a little bit. And there, there's two big groups that are affected here. There are the patients themselves and their families and those care organizations that provide that care. I've seen it represented in recent news stories that there's still going to be care provided but I think they left out a detail about what the rate schedule would look like. What can you tell us about the availability of providers and the impacts on families? What could people expect? Let me uh, go back over that. That's it's real important to, for people to understand this. 
The insurance companies and the politicians will state, we have not changed your benefits. You still, if you buy a lifetime policy, in theory, you'll still have lifetime benefits. Uh, however, because they put in a very draconian, and I'll explain it, a very draconian fee schedule, targeting where companies were at, and we're going to call those the post-acute providers, okay, meaning the people that are providing services after patients get out of the hospital. So we'll call those the post-acute providers for this discussion, as well as the family members at home that are providing what we'll call attendant care for their family members. They targeted what their charges were on January 1st of 2019 and then discounted them by 45%. Wait a minute, 45% in an industry that runs on very thin margins. And let me make sure I understand this. So suppose that I am the victim of a car crash and I end up with a head trauma or spinal cord injury and I'm treated in the hospital and I'm stabilized. And they say, look, we've done everything we can for you in an inpatient setting. We're going to discharge you to home, but I need help feeding. I need help with hygiene, toileting, et cetera. What did happen before the change in the law and what is coming up if 45% of the funds have been removed? So that's a, it's, it's a very important question. And uh, I, again, I want to give a little background to, the, to our audience. Um, insurance companies, uh, meaning auto insurance companies, in Michigan are felt to have a profit margin before the change in the law in the range of 18 to 22%. And if your audience is, if anybody's familiar with Jake from State Farm, <laughs> or they're familiar with Flo from Progressive or, you know, or these kind of, or Mayhem from Allstate, um, you'll recognize that and the Allstate Sugar Bowl and the State Farm Stadium and all states sponsoring the college football playoff, et cetera, et cetera, you'll recognize that subscriber dollars go to marketing and promotion for many of these insurance companies, as opposed, this is before the law change, as opposed to subscriber needs. If you look at hospitals, the very best hospitals in Michigan have a profit margin, possibly a four or 5% as opposed to the 18 to 22%. If you, many hospitals don't make any money at all or they lose money. Right. Hospitals, as you know, are required when somebody comes to the emergency department, whether they have insurance or not, they don't get turned away. By law, we take care of them, whether they have insurance or they don't have insurance, which is why there's not much of a profit margin. But we're glad to do that, obviously, because that's what we chose to do with our lives. If you go to any hospital, you'll notice that any wing, any pavilion, any center in the facility is named after somebody who donated that or donated it in their memory. So it's based on philanthropic support. Almost every hospital has to have a gala every year in order to continue to fund specific programs in the hospitals. On the other hand, the post-acute providers that we're talking about here today receive no federal funds, no state funds, no municipal funds, and are really not in any position to gain from philanthropy. These are programs that were started primarily through mom and pop organizations because their family member had had a, 
a bad injury and they had to start these programs to have a place for them to go to. And yes, they got bigger over time as more and more people came and they recognized the great job that they were doing for these people. That's the background of the people we're talking about now. Those that get no funds, get no philanthropy, et cetera, but yet had their fees cut 45%. And that was cut 45% at the time they at the time that that COVID came. And when COVID came and, and people couldn't work uh, because they had to be home with their kids, homeschooling their kids, et cetera, then it became much more difficult for people to hire staff and therefore what, what it cost to hire staff, salaries went up. And even as people came back to work and, and things opened up, if you had a choice, you're looking for a job, you had a choice of getting a job at a fast food restaurant or for Amazon or any of these other places, you knew you could get a job for $15 an hour. If you were working in the post-acute provider realm or you were a family provided attendant and you were making 12 to $14 an hour before and it's going to be cut 45%, all of a sudden you could be making six, seven, eight dollars an hour. It's unsustainable, obviously. In addition for these programs, because of the supply chain problems that came on because of COVID, then all supplies and equipment for the programs went up. So bring that home, that the change in the law, which says, oh, what a joyous day. Everybody gets $400 if you were paying for car insurance. That was the the benefit, supposedly. But what, what was really bought with that was the devastation in a care market. And, and so I'd like you to just make this real for our listeners. And and two things that, that if you would not mind going through, and I know you've got hundreds and hundreds of case studies, but you have, you have a story about a gentleman that had become injured and was being cared for at home. And then a company, first call, I believe, that was in the business of providing these services that essentially said, we just can't anymore. What I want our listeners, viewers, and readers to think about, put yourself in the position of the injured person or put yourself in the position of being a caregiver and you've been paying into the system through no fault of your own, this terrible tragedy has befallen you. And prior to this change that returned $400 to drivers, there would be lifetime care at a rate where the person could remain at home the family could be supported, and there was enough money in the system for companies that provide respiratory therapy and respite care and wound treatment and rehabilitation services to serve. And that's going away. And I'd, I'd love for you to explain how that makes an impact. And I'd be glad to do that. The, the law was changed because of an affordability issue, and that was essentially taken care of by providing people with what we call PIP choice, personal injury protection insurance choice. So instead of unlimited, some could buy $500,000 cap, $250,000 cap, or $50,000 cap. But for all these patients that we've been taking care of since 1974, when when the law was first implemented uh, and are now catastrophically injured, receiving services funded by the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association, they've been, they're all getting wiped out systematically. So the fee schedules, two things happened. The fee schedules went into place on beginning of July 
and the hours allowed for reimbursement by family provided attendant care dropped from 24-7 or 168 hours per week to 56 huh. hours per week per family, even though the person is totally paralyzed. So Health Partners, which is the which was the state's largest home care agency taking care of catastrophically injured individuals, closed on June 30th because their accountants and lawyers told them it's going to be unsustainable. They had to close and they were the largest one. And I have patients around the states that are at home on ventilators and I needed agencies that can manage them. And they, they were an example of an agency that could definitely manage them. They closed. And all of a sudden we had to try to start finding other agencies that might be able to do it. But systematically, little by little, more and more home care agencies closed. The one that you just mentioned first call um, that I shared with you yesterday is the latest, but not the first. In other words, there are many agencies that have already closed. And those that have remained open have remained open only because they've either taken out extended lines of credit, remortgaged their homes, you know, or gone into their pension funds to try to keep these going because they cared so much about their, their patients. Um, you know who Vladimir Konstantinov is. Of course. A former Red Wing who was injured in 1997 in a horrendous limousine accident, has a, a, a terrible uh, brain injury, requires 24-7 care. His agency also uh, has has stated that by the end of April, along with many other agencies, this is no longer going to be sustainable. There's a lot more to it uh, than just the, the fact that the fee schedule changed. Uh, I won't go into that right now, but you can ask me a little bit later on about what what has been the role of the insurance companies in non-payment for some of these people. But wait. For those people that might need to be refreshed about Vladimir Konstantinov, this was a world-class athlete playing professional hockey for the Detroit Red Wings. Just won the cup, and he was in a limousine with trainer Sergei Mastakhanov and others. No seatbelt, had a spinal injury. He's very strong man. I think he stood up before they used to bring him out to the games and things. But he clearly is a guy that needs help with everything, you know, feeding and such. And he's a big man. So his wife, who's a you know, normal sized woman, couldn't possibly move or lift this guy. And so he's in need of these long-term rehabilitative services. But but he got hurt you know, 20 some years, 25 years ago. So 25 years ago. now, And, and so he should be fine, right? Because he was covered under the old program. No, but they didn't grandfather people in. They told people they were going to grandfather them in and, and not make them subject to the new rules. But this bill was passed, as you probably know, in the middle of the night at 2.30 without legislators even taking a look at it, without any public hearings whatsoever. And it was written by the insurance industry. And they did not grandfather people in, so he didn't get grandfathered in either. And under those circumstances, he's not only does he have 24-hour care, but we've endeavored to find Russian-speaking caregivers for him, for his comfort level. And he's he's had some challenges uh, behaviorally at times that has necessitated people with, with real patience and skill to assist him. He needs help with all dressing, showering, all his mobility, uh, et cetera. He can't make a phone call on his own, uh, et cetera. Here is a public figure, a beloved member of a 
beloved team with other countrymen around him, and he is being denied the care he needs. Think if you didn't have that. Think if you're the parent of a 17-year-old driving home from school and your car gets T-boned. You're faced with the choice of caring for that child at home for the next 50 years, probably going through every bit of your personal resources, or you've got to put your loved one in a facility someplace, which I understand that there's so much that people that are caring for those that are injured know they can't get a bed. So they're moving earlier, even though maybe it's not medically necessary and with tragic results. Am I am I right about that? That's totally right. So uh, the, the point I made a little bit earlier, Health Partners was the first. The first call is the latest and the, and the agency taking care of uh, Vladdy is going to be following soon, but there there have been over 1,500 patients so far that have that have been impacted, um, you know, and uh, and many people have lost their jobs as well. Wait, how many that are affected? Well, this was back in October. There had been at least, I think, 1,500 then. There's probably a lot more now. That was four months ago. I'm sure it's at least double that now. One of the things that was so important about your credentials that you take care of of people on the long term. And look, my editorial opinion, if you will, we're paying the price right now for term limits. The idea of term limits was somebody would be in their professional life, they would set that down for a couple of years, go serve in Lansing, come back, live under the laws that they passed. That's happened so infrequently, it basically doesn't happen. And so we have very young people in the legislature that are only going to be there six years. We're going to turn our legislature over every six years. And so the lobbyists and the staffs are where the power is. And when bad legislation like this comes up, the last line of defense is the governor who could veto it. And I'm, I'm pausing to, to consider whether I should say anything about the governor's linkage to the insurance industry through her father, but maybe that's better left out of this discussion. Well, the important part of the discussion is that earlier in that very same week and uh, and and a month prior to that, uh, in, a, in a talk first in April of 2019, when speaking to the Brain Injury Association of Michigan Legacy Dinner, Governor Whitmer said that she would not do anything that would that would harm any of these patients or their families. Uh, on the Monday before this bill passed, she was at a fundraiser in Chelsea for Donna Lisinski, a state rep, and made the exact same comment. And then three days later, this bill was passed. In defense of the governor, they probably get reports from staff who shape that and may not have a full command of everything that's in the law. And, you know, the reporting on it has been very scant about what the actual content is. And indeed, in the Detroit Free Press last week, they put an article out saying, no, everybody's still covered. Had we not had you and George Sinus available, I never would have known that they had slashed the rate schedule. Yeah. Well, I I would tell all the listeners to take with a grain of salt anything that you read that comes from uh, the Insurance Alliance of Michigan, because there's probably not much that's really truthful in those comments. And so going further, um, in addition to uh, losing the 
home health care agencies, many patients have lost access to transportation, transportation to doctor's appointments, transportation to uh, therapy uh, appointments. They've also lost therapies. Uh, some of the insurance companies are unilaterally denying people who need ongoing physical therapy, massage therapy because of their increased tone, uh, fitness therapy, is denying those right and left. Uh, denying case management services, denying certain pieces of equipment that they need uh, without any objective reasons for this. And so as somebody who's trying to take care of these patients chronically for all these years, they're doing everything they can to essentially tie our hands to make it much more difficult. They're, they're bringing us down like, like what goes on in other states. People always ask, what goes on in other states? They always say Michigan pays the most. I say Michigan had the best deal because Michigan paid maybe a little bit more than other states, but the other states got nothing. Some states around us have caps of $50,000. They get no post-acute services at all. And under those circumstances, then they go bankrupt in the things that you mentioned. In Michigan, in addition to those therapies and in addition to that attendant care, then they had the ability to have their vehicles modified, their houses modified to be uh, adaptable for their functioning from a wheelchair level, the support of case managers, the support of vocational programs to help them get back to work, uh, et cetera. And all of this has been disrupted. I can't think of anything good about this policy. Let's shift a little bit toward looking at solutions. What would a better alternative be from where we stand today? Presuming that the Republican legislature passed this, Democrat governor signed it into law, and that a repeal is probably not in the cards. What could be done from this point forward? There's several things. Um, going back to September 25th of 2019, meaning essentially three plus months after the bill was actually signed into law, uh, a rally was held at the Capitol called Fix the Fix because it was recognized that the law itself was, was going to create the problems that it has created. Interestingly, even though it's a Republican-controlled legislature, many of the bills that have uh, been brought forward to the House and Senate insurance committees um, have been either bipartisan or Republican-sponsored. Most recently, the bill by Phil Green, uh, which was 5698, uh, was was set up to try to provide some relief uh, and still not impact raising insurance rates. However, this week, as, as you know, two days ago, uh, Jason Wentworth, the Speaker of the House, decided that there was going to be no further discussion on this bill this year. It's only March of this year, uh, you know, on this bill. And so um, it's, it's very unfortunate because Phil Green had put together, not only being the sponsor, 57 co-sponsors, meaning 58 of the 110 members of the House, uh, meaning a majority of the House, was behind the bill that he put together. Yet Jason Wentworth and Dare Rendon, who is the chair of the House Insurance Committee, would not allow the bill to be heard in the committee, meaning getting public hearings, et cetera. There's been no bill that's been introduced since this became a law 
that has had any hearings in the House Insurance Committee or the Senate Banking and Insurance Committees. There is currently a lawsuit uh, related to Ann Derry, which is a case of a woman who sustained a severe traumatic brain injury and requires, again, not only the 24-hour care, but family-provided attendance or to maintain privacy in the house and not overstimulation, a lot of, not a lot of turnover in staff because that's what you get otherwise, uh, attempting to look into why uh, and whether it's constitutional that, there, that, that she wasn't grandfathered in. This is a very important piece of legislation, uh, excuse me, of judicial uh, scenario that needs to be addressed by the Court of Appeals. And hopefully they will recognize the need here to get this accomplished sooner rather than later, while there still are some post-acute providers left to do to deal with this. If nothing changes, what can people expect? They can expect it will be like other states, that if they're involved in an X, first of all, they can expect, ironically, their insurance rates to go up. So even though insurance rates went down, maybe slightly for people who bought the the 500,000, the 250 are qualified for the 50,000. Insurance rates are going to go up, and the insurance companies have, have acknowledged that the rates are going to go up. For people who bought the continued unlimited, they're paying more not only because of the rates themselves, but because they have to buy liability insurance in case they get sued by people who are uninsured or underinsured. What does that mean? That means that, say, I'm the driver, I have the unlimited policy, and and I hit somebody and they're injured and they had a $250,000 policy. In the past, if their expenses went over the $250,000, they would have had the lifetime benefit. Their insurance company would have covered them for all the necessary services for the rest of their lives. But now that they don't have that coverage and it expired at the $250,000 level, now they're going to come and sue me because they have these expenses. And I'm going to be liable, so I have to take out extra protection. And frankly, if you didn't have that, but you had assets, they could sue you for that. Same thing. Correct. We've managed to take a working system that protected those among us who might fall victim to one of the greatest tragedies, who might need all the compassion of society and rip that apart. And for my listeners, readers, and viewers, this is the consequence of not demanding better behavior from those that we elect. And I don't care if they are Democrat, Republican, Independent, you know, Green Party, uh, or Libertarian, or anything else. It's not being responsive. And what's astonishing to me is everyone in the legislature and in the governor's office has a family. And everyone could be in this exact same situation and it's just mind-boggling that the pieces of silver represented by $400 would rip the ability for us to be compassionate as a wealthy society. Dr. Perlman, this has been a, an intriguing yet disturbing talk. As we start moving toward the close, what did we not cover today that, that perhaps we should have discussed? I think the fact that 73 legislators, meaning those who were in the legislature in 2019 when this bill passed, uh, and those that either uh, remain in the legislature now, uh, signed a letter uh, a number of months ago already stating that uh, they definitely 
had remorse over the fact that there was not grandfathering in on this bill. They were under the impression at the time that they were signing this bill that they that that individuals who had already been injured were going to be grandfathered in. That didn't happen. So they came out publicly, 73 of them came out publicly to say that this is this is how they felt about it and urged the current legislature to take action on it. The next thing that's very important is that, as I just stated, there are 58 legislators, bipartisan, who signed on to the Phil Green Bill 5698 who wanted to make some changes that could make a significant difference. But one person can stop that. So when Dare Rendon says, we're not going to talk about it in the committee and we're not going to have public hearings. And Jason Wentworth says that we're, we're not going to talk about it for the rest of the year. One person, one person can hold all this up, even though there are 58 members of the house who are working in good faith to try to come up with a solution and he doesn't want to come up with a solution. And Mike Shirky says, we need more data. Well, we've provided plenty of data. Uh, the there's a Poverty Solutions is through the University of Michigan School of Social Work. They happen to do a paper on, on auto no fault uh, several months ago now. And they pointed out that they felt that the legislature did overreach on the fee schedule. Michigan Public uh, Health, now they call by MPHI, did a survey of, of patients and providers back in October. They have the second part of the survey out right now. And that's where they showed again how, how much that there was overreach uh, again, but nothing's been done about it. We've had seven people who've died, separate from all the people who've had to leave their home and go into nursing homes. We had a memorial service. We, we formed the Michigan Interfaith Coalition of faith leaders who've recognized that this law as currently set up is immoral, unethical, and inhumane. Why would you create a law where people are dying from something? And, uh, and that's what's happened. And so we had, a, we had a memorial service right across the street from the Capitol on March 1st, uh, where we had a we filled a church where people had an opportunity to hear from the family members of those who had died. You asked about one of the people that I sent you information about. This was a young man who died when he was 51. He was injured when he was in his 40s. His family was doing a great job of taking care of him at home. But when the 56-hour rule came into place and the lack of reimbursement came into place, they could no longer do that. And his wife recognized it was going to get harder and harder to try to get him into a program because the programs were starting to narrow uh, their access. So she was able to get him into a program. She hoped in front of other people. She got him in in December. Within 24 hours of being in the program, a guy who had not been on an oxygen or a ventilator at home was on a ventilator in the program because they, they couldn't take care of him as well, meaning a, a nursing home. They couldn't take care of him as well as the family could take care of him. And within a short period of time, he died. And one last thing I want to say is any of the articles that you read related to IAM or any or legislator quoting this or or Aaron McDonough from IAM quoting this where they say we had to do this because of the gougers, because of the rampant fraud, etc. That is simply not true. We are talking about a subset of people injured in motor vehicle accidents, those who are catastrophically injured. 
who qualify for services to be paid for by the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association. We're not talking about the the people who might have a fender bender who have a temporary problem, a soft tissue problem. We're talking about people who have ongoing neurologic problems for the rest of their lives and are going to require care for the rest of their lives. There is no, there's minimal to no fraud in that group. In addition, they always use that same example of some very expensive MRI. That MRI, I doubt that it's true in the first place, but that MRI has nothing to do with post-acute providers. Post-acute providers aren't doing MRIs. They're taking care of patients. And um, the insurance companies, long before the law changed, have always had the opportunity to use bill review companies and have always paid whatever they wanted to pay. And they essentially would either do that or they would get independent medical examinations and cut patients off, or they would simply stop paying. And the only time they ever had to pay the full charges was if they lost a lawsuit uh, under those circumstances. So it's total misrepresentation and disingenuous to say that, that, the, that there are gougers out there. There are no gougers out there. That's not, it's not remotely true. This is a great ending point, a great summation. The common bridge, this is what we're about, is what's in the policy. It's not about Republican versus Democrat, red versus blue, urban versus rural. It's none of those things. We're united by our humanity. It doesn't matter if someone over here is very powerful on one side of a chasm. Someone over here is powerful on their side. If we don't come together, and if we can't come together to take care of those few unfortunate that are met with a unexpected accident or illness that renders their need for extreme care, we've lost our government. We need to demand our reporting organizations actually dig and do the reporting. With our guest today, Dr. Owen Perlman, talking about the devastation for long-term care for critically injured people. This is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe. All rights reserved.